Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. All right, ElixirConf US 2020 videos are now available online. So we discussed that before, that the keynotes uh, are on YouTube. They're free. You can view them there, uh, along with uh, one or two other videos there. However, now the rest of the videos are are also available, uh, but not on YouTube. Instead, they're on Vimeo uh, and after purchasing access. It looks like it's $100 US dollars uh, to access over 18 hours of video. We'll have a link in the show notes for you to go find those. AlchemyConf was announced, and that will be a two-day Elixir conference held in Braga, Portugal. Uh, Braga sounds like a beautiful city, uh, just reading about some of the things they're outlining with it. And this is set up to be a, an in-person conference. So if you're coming out of this COVID lockdown and you're like, I want to get out and I want to see people and I'd love to see a beautiful city, this sounds like it might be a good option for that. So that will be the 14th and 15th of May in 2021. Let's hope everything goes smoothly so we can make that in person. A couple of days ago, Ecto 350 RC1 was released. It looks like it may come out soon. This is an exciting release with parameterized type and Ecto enum support like we have talked about on previous episodes. For more details on that, Check out our interview with Mike Bins. And the Nerves Project won the 2020 IoT Evolution Community Impact Award for Nerves Hub. So there were three different projects that were granted that kind of winning status. But it's always great to see part of the Elixir ecosystem make a splash and get wider industry recognition. So congrats to the Nerves Project. All right, Credo 1.5 RC1 is out. If you haven't heard of Credo, Credo is the popular static code analysis tool for Elixir projects. Uh, gives helpful suggestions on improving code quality and uh, code readability. Uh, and it just had its 1.5.0 RC1 release. So maybe by the time the, you hear this, uh, the full 1.5.0 has released. Uh, but some of the changes include add the name of the check to the message when printing issues uh, when you're using verbose mode. And mix credo dash dash watch can now enable watching files for changes instead of rerunning the checks. Uh, so that's pretty neato. Uh, and there's a new diff command. You can now ask credo to only report changes in the files that were changed since the given git reference. This is pretty helpful. Uh, I know that there's some comparable Ruby tools that do something along those lines. Like uh, if you're using RuboCop in Ruby, uh, RuboCop will, will scan the entire code base. <laughs> but if you use Pronto, Pronto will use RuboCop, but only only give you the warnings since a different Git reference. So this looks like a good Elixir equivalent here. And finally, there is a new Elixir project called Ash Framework that was announced with some uh, fanfare. And what's interesting about this is they're taking a different approach to creating and defining API endpoints in Phoenix applications. Instead of building your traditional routes and controllers the way you normally think of it, this is using macros and a simplified declarative syntax where you define REST or even GraphQL interfaces. Another point that I found was interesting was the definition of a policies, which can help define access controls for what types of users can access different content. This is just an alpha release, and if nothing else, it provides an interesting point of discussion where we can start to talk about things that maybe we've been taking for granted about this is the way you do it, and to look for future progress. Well, that's it for the news. Today, I'm really excited to have two special guests. Today, we have John Hugberg and Lucas Larsen. They join us to tell us about the work that they've been doing together. 
Super exciting stuff. You've probably heard about it. It's building a just-in-time compiler for the Erlang Beam VM, or OTP. This represents a significant improvement for performance for all Beam languages. I'm really excited they're able to come on and share what they've been working on with us and helping us to understand better what it means to us as developers and to the community as a whole. Guys, thanks for coming. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. Hi, thanks. So John, maybe you can go first and just tell us a little bit about yourself, where you live, uh, what kind of work you're doing, and I'd love to hear how long you've been working with Erlang and the Beam. Well, uh, as you said, I'm, I'm from Sweden. I live in Stockholm at the moment, and uh, I work at Ericsson on the Erlang OTP team and have been doing so for the past three years, roughly. I didn't have any uh, prior experience with Erlang or the Beam until I started working on the OTP team, so I'm a bit junior. But it's been a fun ride so far. I would not have thought of going to and seeking out working on the Erlang language without having played with it first. So that, I would love to hear about that. Just like, you know, what previous programming language experience did you have? And then jumping into Erlang, you know? Well, I'm a bit of a language nerd. I learn computer languages just for fun. I kind of collect them. And uh, <laughs> just finding this opportunity to actually work on a programming language, it was just an amazing opportunity. And uh, I, I applied. Very cool. Well, Lucas, I'd love to hear about you. Uh, so I also live in Stockholm, Sweden, and I've been working with Erlang since 2005, I think, so for 15 years. Uh, I started right out of university. There were a lot of Erlang people at the Gothenburg University, so I started started there with uh, had Francesco was my thesis supervisor, so Francesco Cesarini. Uh, so I got to know him and I've been working, I'm, I actually work at Erlang Solutions. So that's where I'm employed and I've been a consultant working at Ericsson for the last decade. So I started 2010 there and I've been working there developing Erlang OTP for 10 years now. And in the scheme of things, I am also a junior uh, there working. So many of my colleagues have been there since before 2000. Wow. That could be exciting and intimidating, I imagine. So. Both at the same time, yes. But I'm starting to get there. I'm starting to be it's like since when John says that he's a junior, it's kind of like, yes, he's new in that regard. <laughs> so I'm starting to get there. Well, we're really excited to have you guys on because you guys have both been working on some really impressive stuff that it's specifically Erlang focused, but it impacts all Beam languages. And it represents a huge potential improvement to all languages that just lifts everybody that is in the Beam space. So I'm really excited about it. So maybe you can give us a little brief overview of what it is you guys have been working on. I've been involved with a lot of uh, just-in-time compiler projects working on Beam for a long time. So me together with some research people from an institute in Sweden that Ericsson has have hired have been working on trying to get Erlang code and, well, languages running on the Beam uh, run quicker in different scenarios. And what we've managed now is that me, together with John and some other colleagues at Ericsson, have managed to finally make something that we want to release and something that we're very excited about to see. So a kind of a just-in-time compiler for all for Erlang and for Elixir and all of the other languages running on the Beam. And so for some folks that don't know what just-in-time compiling is, can you give a brief overview of what that is and how it might differ from what exists now? 
So just in time compiling is basically optimizing your code. Uh, well, it's compiling your code at runtime rather than doing it ahead of time. So in a normal compiler, like if you're running Go or Rust or C or C++ or any of these ahead of time compiled languages, you would compile to a native target an x86 Linux ahead of time. While when you're running Erlang or Elixir or yeah, some other language, you would uh, instead compile to a Beam format, an intermediate format that would then be loaded at runtime and put into some kind of native format. So normally you achieve that by creating what's called an interpreter. So you have an interpreter that kind of reads the code that's cross-platform executes that and then does different things uh, depending on, for instance, if it's a move, if it's a get tuple or something different, it would do something different. And a just-in-time compiler kind of eliminates the interpreter in that scenario and instead creates the native code that an ahead-of-time compiler would create when it compiles, it creates it just-in-time, so when you need it, so when you are running the code. So I know there are a number of different uh, just-in-time approaches, like in other languages. Were there any other projects or initiatives that you are aware of that were a part of an inspiration for this? The previous attempts uh, were kind of like tracing just-in-time compilers. So that's there you have two kind of classes of just-in-time compilers, and all tend to be a mixture between the two. And on the one hand, you have the tracing just-in-time compilers, which is the most famous ones, I would say, would be things like uh, the Mozilla's just-in-time compilers were like that. Almost all of them today have transitioned over to be what's more called method-based just-in-time compilers. Uh, And the main difference between these ones is that a method-based just-in-time compiler kind of focuses on one method or function uh, at the time or procedure when it tries to compile and optimize, while a tracing kind of tries to see, look for loops and traces within a running code and then compiles that into it. So for instance, like if we were to compile some Erlang code that would be a tracing compilation unit, we would kind of see what's being executed and what's actually being executed and seeing, uh, okay, so we go through this function, we take that card, we go into do this function call and so on and so on and create a uh, loop that is that trace. But for a method one, you would just take the entire function and compile that as a unit. And all of the previous attempts have been tracing compilers because we really thought that Erlang code and the code you write for Erlang would benefit from having that and having dynamic typing as we do with the terms being the way they are. We don't have anything really coming from the compiler in a way of types. We have to test everything. That seemed like a good hypothesis that that would work. Three attempts later, the idea came to us to try to do a method-based compiler. And the first thing we wanted to try was to do something extremely, extremely simple, something that we could do a prototype and see, does this even work? And do we get any benefit from doing this? Because many times we had thought about doing just exactly what we've done today. But before, it's like, nah, it's not going to give anything. We were not convinced that it was going to be enough. We thought that we would have to make a lot more clever code in order for it to work. As it turns out, we didn't have to. 
So that's kind of the story and the inspiration from that, because when you're looking around in what kind of just-in-time compilers there are, then all of the major ones at the moment are method-based. And so we wanted to try one that was method-based. I know that Erlang has um, a different kind of compilation out there now called Hype, or high, I think that stands for High Performance Erlang, right? Correct, yes. I've seen it um, out there as part of like ASDF. Uh, actually, when it's compiling Erlang, I'll just see some notes that it's, you know, that it's including Hype in there. And I assume that High Performance Erlang was created to solve some problems with, with Erlang, particularly performance. <laughs> And so I know that when when I heard about your project here with just in time compiling, that one of the biggest benefits was performance. What what kind of implications does JIT have on Erlang performance? Well, it makes things faster, just like hype. <laughs> uh, <laughs> there's really not much more to it. I mean, we put great pains into just making the JIT run Erlang faster. One of the reasons we've kind of, I hesitate to say abandoned, but one of the reasons we don't want to push on with the hype track, which also had the goal of just making things faster, is that it's it's very complicated, it's very complex, and it doesn't really support the whole of Erlang. You can't uh, do uh, function tracing in hype compiled modules, for example. And there are some warts where it doesn't actually act like the ordinary runtime system does. For example, if you have a very deep call stack and you return up all the way, in normal Erlang, uh, you uh, you can get preempted while returning on the way up. So uh, even if you have a multi-gigabyte stack that you're walking up, uh, your uh, the runtime system will still be it will still be stable. Different processes will still be able to get to run and so on. But hype doesn't really support that. So uh, a process that is returning up a call stack, it will simply run until it's done. And that's not good at all. Uh, so there are a lot of things we would need to fix with hype to make it work the way we want it, want it to. And once we've done that, it's no longer fast. Uh, so <laughs> legit was kind of, it was our attempt at hype our attempt at making Erlang faster while re remaining completely compatible with Erlang. One thing that I heard when folks consider Elixir or Erlang for their projects, one of the questions that often came up to evaluate whether to select the language was, you know, what kind of, what kind of thing are you doing, you know, in your, in your application? If, are you crunching a lot of numbers? That's what I would hear. If you're crunching a lot of numbers then you probably shouldn't select Erlang or Elixir because it's not good at that. Does the JIT defeat that argument now? What, what do you guys think? It certainly helps. It helps, but it's not there. There are certain algorithms that are kind of optimized for when you have mutable state like doing huge matrix multiplications when you're kind of duplicating the entire matrix the entire time. That's not something that you want to do in Erlang or on on the Beam virtual machine at all uh, there. But if you're doing possibly maybe doing floating point things or something like that where you're not carrying a huge large amounts of memory, but there, then maybe we're getting a lot closer with uh, the JIT than we were before. But the point of the JIT hasn't really been to 
catch up in the places where we were weak before, but rather kind of be stronger in the ones that we were already strong in, so to say. Then we're, of course, always looking for ways to make it faster for more use cases. But we have our kind of the sweet spots for our use cases as well that we focus on making things better. Now, as I was reviewing some of the the pull requests and just kind of the work that you guys have been working on, I was seeing mention of something called Beam ASM. I was wondering if you could just kind of give an explanation of what that is. So that's the name that we have given to this uh, just-in-time compiler. We, uh, it's kind of a, I mean, it's a derivative of what we use a library called ASM JIT to generate all of our native code at runtime. Uh, there. So this is kind of just a rewording of that and putting Beam inside of it. Uh, so flipping all the different parts. And that's what we call this incarnation of the JIT. Uh, the tracing ones have bef- before been called Beam JIT. That would also have been a good name, but I wanted to have something different uh, than that because it's a radically different approach than the Beam JIT projects uh, there. So it became Beamasm, which is terrible to say uh, and pronounce, but it's uh, <laughs> now it's what we were stuck with. Did I see that this was just merged into master and OTP? Yeah, I did that this morning. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so this it's not finalized as such, but it's what it works well enough for everything. So we decided to merge it because we have we, it's easier for us to co- to collaborate when everything is merged into the master branch. So that's kind of one of the reasons why we did it and didn't prolong it. We we had some outstanding performance issues that we want to look at, but no functional issues as such. So there, and we really do believe that this will be a really good thing. And then, of course, if it doesn't work, you can disable the entire thing if you want to and just run the normal code as it was before. For the release for OTP24, which will be in May, I suppose, April, May, somewhere around there, this JIT will be enabled for like all uh, languages by default uh, there, as long as you have a recent enough C++ compiler on your system, which seems to be most people except people running on old Ubuntus and so on. Wow. So I want to make sure I'm hearing that right. So... It's targeted for OTP24, which is slated to release in April or May of next year, and will become the default runtime for OTP24? Yeah. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Congratulations. It's a lot closer. (laughs) Yeah, this is kind of uh, the reason why I would not have done and been that confident with the BeamJIT project, because it was a lot more complex. But this is very simple. It does very little optimizations, which makes it very simple and very safe for us to include as such, which is why we can push for it and making that, yeah, let's go for this all the way. Had we done more complex things and more complex optimizations, I wouldn't have been as sure. But this is kind of, it's a simple solution, so it's not uh, very difficult to push forward. So, John, I was wondering, when does this JIT process happen? Like, where in the chain of events from when I say, like, is it during, like, the compilation process or when it starts up? Like, where when is this activating? Instead of loading to uh, some um, internal beam code when the module is loaded, we simply we load it to native code, so to speak. We compile to native code as the module is loaded. So all modules, all the time. That's really cool. 
So then me as a, an Elixir developer, it sounds like there's nothing that I need to do special to take advantage of this, right? Absolutely nothing. And uh, anything that was fast with the interpreter will be fast with the, with the JIT and vice versa. So there's really nothing special going on. Your programs will get faster and that's it. You know, I got to say, I love that. It's just like, it's like, I'm just developing, working on my stuff. New version comes out. Boom, my app is faster. It's like, when does that happen, right? <laughs> <laughs> so one question I did have is that when you're building and compiling to native code, I imagine there are some types of things that don't go perfectly well because maybe I'm sending a message or I'm saying, hey, execute this function from this string name. You know, something strange. Like I'm almost evaling code. Are, are there any kinds of operations where I won't see that benefit? Well, we're jetting all operations. Uh, there's not a single instruction in the interpreter that doesn't also exist in the JIT. But operations that are generally heavy on C code, uh, like you're doing something in the emulator, the runtime itself, like ETS, or you're calling a BIF, or you're calling a NIF, uh, you won't see any benefit there because most of the runtime will be in C code, both with the interpreter and the JIT. But otherwise, if you're just writing normal Erlang code, it will get faster. So as an example, to build on that, we had in the pull request somebody posting an Elixir Shaw algorithm something that they were having a performance regression with. And it turns out that that one uses a lot of uh, binary ands, so bands, on big nums. So big nums is not something that the JIT will optimize for at all, really. Small numbers, so less than, what is it, 59 bits of numbers, it will optimize for. But big nums, larger numbers than that, and this was a short 256-bit algorithm or something, so it was big nums doing band all the time. And there you will see no benefit. And he was, uh, this user was even hitting some places where they were seeing drawbacks of using the just-in-time compiler because of various internal things that we've since fixed. But it was an edge case in there. But that's the kind of... It's not only when you're calling BIFs and so on. It can be some operations on things that are inherently written in C code because they are complicated inside the runtime system. So I'm not I'm not an expert in compilers or all of this deep stuff, but... I've been wondering, is there some kind of overhead now that you're waiting until just before you run the module? Is there like little bits of overhead when you load a module for the first time when your server is fresh up? Yeah, there's a slight, slight, slight overhead compared to the old interpreter, but it's uh, as a user, you won't notice it. Our compilation from Beam to native code is it's actually quite naive and it's barely more complicated than memcopy. It should be fast enough for most people. We've also spent quite a bit of time optimizing load time in order for it to be quick so that there won't be a difference. I, I can't remember the numbers now, but I, when we started out in the early prototypes, we had something like maybe the load time of a module was somewhere in the region of double. So it would, like when you started an Erlang shell, uh, maybe you load, I can't remember, 60 modules, something like that, 70. There was a noticeable difference when you started it. But by now, there's no difference. It's it's 5% or something like that in startup time uh, that you take. I'm not, not even sure it's 5%. It could be even less. Yeah, it's really tiny. 
So you'd mentioned that you'd had three different attempts at doing this type of work before. How long have you guys been working on this particular project? We at the at the OTP team at Ericsson, we have something what we call as a fun day, which is uh, once every sprint, our sprints are about four weeks. We have one day where we are mandated to do something fun and mildly work-related. So I started this as a fun day just after Christmas in January. Uh, there, So that's when I did the first variant of this that looks nothing like the code that is at the moment, but it was kind of a proof of concept to see that do we gain anything by doing this at all. And then I did a bit of work uh, when I was, wasn't busy with everything during... Uh, maybe February, March, and then we really started working, me and John, in April-ish, I would say. So just a couple of weeks after we started getting isolated in our homes here, and then we worked all the way to summer vacation in Sweden, I would say. So that's end of July-ish, something like that. And then we were kind of feeling that we were done with the whole thing. We had something that was working very well, by midsummer, so mid June, and then it's been improvements after that. How, how does the new uh, JIT BMASM? I'll call it by its name. There we go. How does that affect uh, tools like debuggers? I know that Luke Imhoff has done a lot of work around this, especially with IntelliJ, as manages the plugin there. And I remember a talk that he gave in 2018 about how how debugging kind of works, and he goes into how I mean his perspective is from from Elixir, so. It uh, goes from Elixir code to Erlang code to C code to Beam assembly. Now, with the removal of the interpreter in there, I don't know, does that really change anything with how debuggers would work with this new runtime? Well, the ordinary Erlang debugger, which is included in OTP, it simply works if you're using that. Otherwise, you can now actually use GDB. I don't think we have uh, support for breaking at a certain function unless you do that yourself somehow. But if you use GDB or perf, uh, you actually get proper symbols for when you are stopped in Erlang code. It will tell you which Erlang function you're in. So I think that's pretty cool. Yeah, I've had to do that exactly once. <laughs> but I remember it being pretty amazing. I, I didn't do it with Erlang, though. I did it with a different language. But yeah. Okay, so that's nice. So we have, we have access to that now, which I think would be really helpful. Uh, in those intense debugging moments. Uh, but otherwise, I'm hearing that it doesn't seem to really change anything with uh, how debuggers would work. No, not really. But profiling is greatly enhanced with the JIT because you can use uh, ordinary profilers you'd use for C, for example, like perf. They're generally a lot better than the tools we have for Erlang. I mean, the the, the internal tools like fprof, cprof, eprof, they, are, they, t- they, they tend to be more accurate than sampling profilers like perf but they also have much much higher performance overhead and you can't always use them in production because they are just that slow so the ability to use ordinary sampling debuggers now i think that's going to be huge how much work is yet to be done or or kind of like what are your thoughts on targeting things like arm because i think the nerves project is you know oftentimes running on these reduced boards and I'm just wondering if you've, if there's any work around that. We are planning to do ARM support, yes, eventually. 
when that will happen kind of depends on the Apple, I assume. So when their new Apple Silicon processors come into common use, we also want to get a, the developer experience and everybody using their Macs at home and so on to get the performance of the JIT, so to say, uh, there. Because a lot of people coming to Erlang, we want them to not have to use the interpreter as their default. And they say, yeah, I run this here and then I run the JIT on my server. But we want them to get like the developer experience from the beginning and being able to run their small benchmarks and these things to see how things work without the hitch. So that's kind of the reason why we would want to do ARM. And I'm sure as well, Ericsson will change their mind again that they're running ARM. They're jumping back and forth every five years, it would seem, uh, between the two. So maybe there will be incentive internally as well, eventually. So are you guys working on Linux laptops yourselves or Mac? Or what are you just kind of, what's your preference? So I work on a Linux uh, stationary uh, at home uh, there. So I run an Ubuntu. And that's kind of the official Ericsson internal distro as well. So they run an Ubuntu Linux uh, on both the laptops and on stationary if you want to have that. Interesting. How about you, John? Yeah, I run Ubuntu myself. I love that because you know my personal choice is to run Linux for my machines, but uh, I, I see so many people using Mac. I don't know. People tend to go that way in development. For me, when I develop Erlang or JavaScript or web things and so on, which happens on occasion, I do use my Mac, which is what I'm kind of sitting at right now. But when you try to do some kind of C, C++ programming, you need the tools that are on Linux. I would be, uh, I mean, it's like losing an arm kind of working on uh, OS X instead of a Linux because of tools like a tool called RR, that's a Mozilla project that lets you kind of record and rewind is the acronym for. So it's, you record a, a session when you're uh, running and then you get a SegFault, then you're allowed to ste- step back in your code so that you can run to a safe foot and then step back to a known point and then you can step forward back how much of you want. So if you have bugs that are fleeting or race conditions, you just run RR until you hit the race condition and then you have a perfect execution trace of how you got to that race condition and you can just play it back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And without that tool, the JIT would not have been possible, I think, in this time frame. Not at all. I mean, it's the best Thing coming to C programming since debuggers, basically. It's uh, wow. amazing. I'm hearing that it's the year of the Linux desktop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or at least the <laughs> Linux virtual machine, maybe. <laughs> so it sounds like there's a safe fallback to the interpreted runtime if it's not able to target the specific hardware that you're on. Is that right? Yeah. So it's a great backward compatibility. And it sounds like you already have plans in the future to be able to make sure it works on different ARM processors. And I know there's lots of different ARM chipsets. I've, I've never got worked so low that I'm, you know, directly targeting the different chipsets. I've always worked at a higher level languages. So I don't know if that's something that you guys have to, you know, when you're working at that level that you have to think about, or if the tooling just says, I can target this ARM processor and this ARM processor, or I need to differentiate them if there's anything that sensitive. Well, I think we will just target the most basic 64-bit ARM possible. I don't think we'll uh, go out into, I don't think we'll use many extensions. Uh, we haven't with our x86 version. I don't think it should be 
that difficult to spot many different chips. It's just by targeting the lowest common denominator. Nice. Well, I would love to hear any thoughts that you guys have on future work uh, as you're going forward. It sounds like this isn't going to be released for some time. So that's there's some opportunity for internal optimization review and improvement. But beyond that, like, have you thought of, oh, this is where we could go in the future? Going forward, we're kind of looking at trying to make our the main optimizations to be kind of ahead of time rather than just in time. So we're in the long run, we are tr- focusing at the moment more on the compiler rather than comp- on the JIT. The JIT uh, works great as, as it is. And as I said, we want to keep it simple and not make it complicated and bug prone in runtime because in the ahead of time compiler, we can do more optimizations and test things out more easily than if we are doing strange things in somebody's production environment uh, when they're running in the JIT. In the short term, we're kind of looking at just getting some better tooling, possibly working a bit on some security, possible security issues with running native code at the same time as you're running there. Getting a bit more cooperation between the compiler and the JIT so that the compiler can kind of emit some hints about how code should be loaded. So for instance, if we know that there will always be a integer as the first argument in a function, the JIT may be able to optimize depending on that because we have gotten that. The the compiler already knows this. It just doesn't tell the JIT at the moment. So we could, for instance, tell the compiler to emit that information into the beam files dot beam files and then that information can be used by the JIT to eliminate that code that it can't reach really but at the moment it doesn't know that it can't reach it because it could be a tuple or a uh, map or anything else that comes into as an argument but the compiler knows that it can only be a uh, integer for instance so that's the kind of things that we're talking about trying to do in the future at the moment, at least focusing more on other kinds of things inside of Valang OTP than the JIT as such. So taking a shot in the dark here, does it mean that OTP24 is going to have larger beam files than OTP23? If we do that, yes, that would mean that it would be bigger. But maybe, I mean, yes, it would be. Uh, we We try all of the releases, kind of get more compiler optimizations as well, and that kind of decreases the code size. So maybe it evens out in the end. But yes, the size of the beam files would become bigger if you include more information into them. I think our current ideas around this would be that it's an optional metadata that you put inside it so you can strip it, but then you lose the performance gains. So it's kind of if you strip if you are really want to get into these smaller things because that's a concern at Ericsson as well. So they because they build IoT embedded things, right? So the actual file size on disk will matter for some of the products uh, in there. So we can't kind of explode it at the moment. Getting some more information in there might not be might be a good trade off. We will see. John, you mentioned something a while back ago. I- you know that the performance tooling around uh, the, the the beamasm is really good uh, and, and and much better than what it used to be. Are there any other secret pleasantries? You know, with with this so th- things that maybe the ordinary developer would, may not realize, but uh, you guys do realize because you, you worked on this. Hard to say, actually. One rather fun thing you can do is 
you can use RR for Erlang code, and it's much easier to follow it now. Because when you used RR, you could you could use RR for Erlang code before, but since it was all interpreted, uh, GDB didn't actually help you much. So you had to rely on uh, some GDB scripts, which we have written and including included with ODP to try to figure out where you are in Erlang code. But it was very difficult to work with. But now that everything's native code, uh, you can just step backwards in time, instruction per instruction, and you always know where you are. But I, I, I don't think, uh, I don't think it's generally useful. But it, it's fun. Yeah, I think most of the tooling that have come around this is kind of things that make it easier for us to work with developing the runtime system and the, uh, all the things around there, rather than things that would help the users as much. But uh, Path is a it's a good one. It will I think as it will help us a lot to be able to do that when we are helping our customers to kind of figure out the performance of their systems and I'm thinking that it will help a lot of other people as well. So I did have a question for you, Lucas, and, and John, if you want to weigh in on this too. But Lucas, you said you started this as a fun project. And then I'm just kind of curious about when when people other people in the organization saw like, hey, there's something here. And kind of what it was like getting that official blessing to then start working on that as as what your focus was. Our organization at Ericsson is kind of, we have a lot of grassroots power in what we're doing. I was kind of convinced that this would be a good idea uh, kind of very early that I wanted to bring it all the way. And it's never difficult to convince John to do something new and crazy. So that's always fun. And there's a lot of people at the team that are equally excited about new things. When we started working on it for real, it was kind of like, so we did the OTP 23 release at about that time. And then when that ended, or just as we were leading up to it, we kind of thought, okay, so what do we want to really try and do before OTP24? And then this was kind of the biggest thing that we wanted to do. And then it's like, okay, and then we all, did, all agreed on that. And then since then, we've been working on developing this. I think the the good feeling kind of came when the first prototype kind of worked and showed that I could run... Uh, whatever it was, small micro benchmark something, and it went, I don't know what it was, 30, 40% faster than it used to do. And it was like, oh, so this gives something in this small micro. And then the next step was when we were able to run all of Dialyzer together and see that we were closing in on what Hype could do in performance on that, because Hype kind of cuts a lot of performance out of Dialyzer. So when we could run all of Dialyzer, that was kind of a big milestone as well because then it kind of feels okay so this is really giving something when it comes to performance and then after that it's been mainly just focusing on getting all the functionality in there and plugging all the holes so you mentioned dialyzer is there a benefit now that dialyzer gets that it runs faster or it can does it change it in any way it it runs faster so that's kind of the idea but it doesn't run a lot faster because the important parts of Dialyzer were already hype compiled in almost everybody's usage of Dialyzer. So when Dialyzer starts up, it says kind of a, a small banner saying compiling some codes, some modules to native code. 
and kind of those are the most important modules. So they will be compiled to native code and then Dialyzer will run using those. So the performance of Dialyzer with the JIT versus Hype, for instance, which would be the comparison and which everybody who uses Dialyzer does use Hype as well. They just don't know it. And then they, it's kind of, it's the same thing, uh, roughly the same performance. Well, I guess my last question for you guys is, uh, what was your favorite part while working on this project? Reaching the prompt. <laughs> just getting the thing to actually run and display a prompt. Uh, it took roughly two weeks to get to that point, And uh, it was just implementing one instruction at a time, trying to hammer out the bugs and just reaching the prompt. That was that was a really happy moment. Yeah, that's a good one. I don't know. I, I'm a big, big fan of the perf integration uh, of everything that and seeing how that works and all the symbols and all the that you can actually go into it and see that, okay, it's this specific assembly instruction that is causing problems at the moment. We are doing some kind of that's really neat. And I, when we got to that point that we could do that, that's that was a big deal for me anyway. Because I spend a lot of time profiling different systems, trying to figure out what kind of performance regressions or problems that we've had. And wish I had this 10 years ago. It would have been so, would have been great. I would have taken that tool without the performance. No, no doubt about it. We would spend, I would have spent this time doing this and just been able to use Perf to do the performance regressions and then have the performance be the same. That would have been, I would have been fine with that. Well, thank you guys for coming on. And I really appreciate the work that you guys have both put into this and anyone else in, on your team, I'm sure, who's been involved. But I just love that sometimes maybe an Elixir perspective, because a lot of people coming to Elixir are coming new to the beam. It's their first exposure. And you know, you talk about Erlang, it's been around for like 30 plus years. But it's evidence like this that shows it is not like just kind of sitting still and done. There's active, impressive work being done on it. And it's work that just benefits everyone in the ecosystem. So I appreciate both of you guys' efforts and uh, all the awesome stuff. So I'm really looking forward to OTP24. Well, if people want to learn more about this, uh, we'll have a link to their PR in the show notes. So you can check out some of the notes on that. There is some more explanation and, and documentation. But if people want to follow you online or get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? So get in touch, I guess it would be our email addresses. So it's lucas at erlang.org and john at erlang.org uh, for contact there. Uh, I have a Twitter handle that I'm sure you can post a link to. I'm not going to try to pronounce it. It's supposed to be written, not pronounced. If anybody has any questions or tries the just-in-time compiler and finds bugs, performance regressions, anything like this, please do post in the PR, report a bug on bugs.erlang.org, or just send us an email, send an email to Erlang questions. There's so many channels, so it's uh, just reach out. We'll try to figure out, because we really want this to work well when we release OTP24, so try it on all of your different projects. And I know already a lot of companies have privately reached out and said that, oh, this works. And it either it's gave them a whopping increase of 0% or it's been uh, 10 to 15%. I don't know. It's, it depends. The one that stands out is kind of the compile times of many of the projects have dropped quite substantially. So the Alan compiler has become quite a lot faster and that shows up in the bigger projects where it takes 
a long time to compile. So for instance, compiling Erlang OTP on our GitHub Actions has kind of dropped from 33 minutes to somewhere around 22, 23. So it's a 30% drop in compile time. And that's, uh, that's nice. We'll see how that translates into production. Who knows? Excellent. So there's a lot of wonderful resources for people to follow up with. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.